This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Jeff Sonnenfeld is the Senior Associate Dean of Leadership Programs and the Lester Crown Professor in the Practice of Management at the Yale School of Management. He is also founder and president of the Chief Executive Leadership Institute, a nonprofit educational and research institute focused on CEO leadership and corporate governance. Previously, he was on the faculty at Emory's Guizetta Business School and Harvard Business School. Sonnenfeld's research has been published in a hundred scholarly articles which appeared in the leading academic journals in management, and his work is regularly cited by the general media in outlets including Businessweek, Fortune, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, as well as PBS, where he's a regular commentator for Fortune, and CNBC. He has also authored eight books, including The Hero's Farewell, an award-winning study of CEO succession, and another bestseller, The Brilliant Firing Back, a study on leadership resilience in the face of adversity. Business Week listed him as one of the world's 10 most influential business school professors, and Directorship Magazine has listed him among the 100 most influential figures in corporate governance. He's also the first academician to have rung the opening bells of both the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. In this episode, Jeff and I talk about the changing climate among business leaders. Mainstream industries are becoming more progressive than historically progressive companies and are not waiting for company regulation, but are pushing back against government deregulation. We also talk about how to handle career setbacks in the face of adversity, public humiliations. Powerful stuff. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would please rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, get set to listen to and learn from one of the truly great minds in the field of leadership whose immense knowledge brings us great insights leavened with a deep sense of humanity. It's my good friend, Yale professor Jeff Sonnenfeld. It's Jeff Sonnenfeld. Welcome, Jeff. Oh, thank you so much, Stuart. It, it is uh, quite an honor to join you. Uh, it, uh, I, I must apologize yeah. to your audience for a couple of reasons. First, uh, a third of them already hate me because of that wonderful introduction uh, <laughs> that uh, I, I think if, if we could see them right now, the eyes would have been glazing over as you went into the third or fourth paragraph, and I wish I could pretend false modesty, but I probably forked most of that information your way, <laughs> so I apologize to our, to All our right. listeners. Apologies, and, uh, I'm sure, accepted. 
I also should also mention that I am now, and you mentioned the NASDAQ and NYSE. And yeah. I've actually rung their bells uh, nine times in total. Get out. But I shouldn't be bragging about that because I now I'm on the board of their ARC competitor, the oh, yeah. transparent and honest IEX, which is the the exchange that, that doesn't take advantage of people by, uh, as the, the major exchanges right now basically have a form of front-running on deals, uh, which you know, we probably won't have time to get into, uh, but the front-running on deals, and they pay kickbacks to get the business sent their way. Uh-huh. So it's very interesting. But, uh, but yeah, I, I should secondly apologize yes. to your listeners, because uh, I have known you so long that when you say an old friend, we are so old that on this first topic alone, we could probably fill three hours of, of discussion on this, uh, mm-hmm. knowing your really very early pioneering work on uh, on corporate reputations, and you and I both knew mm-hmm. uh, different ones, but we both knew the basically the founding generation of the business roundtable mm-hmm. that actually had these these principles in mind at their origin. So uh, should we launch right into that one right away or, or Go. Am I jumping ahead? of Yeah, you? no, no. I, I, th- I think you, there's so much we could discuss. It's true. And I have, I've got about a thousand questions I want to ask you, Jeff, but um, and uh, that I know our listeners are going to benefit from. But I, I'd like to start with uh, if, it, not so much the origins as where we are now in the, you know, the culture of business with respect to social responsibility and why it has emerged as an issue um, that it has seems to have so much resonance today in ways that it it hadn't back in the day when when we were first a part of that conversation early eighties. Uh, well, you know it, it's it's interesting uh, not to uh, to play to a part of your audience of the 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 Gen Z uh, population. And you know, sometimes you get a little skeptical of some of the caricatures that are created in the uh, the social demography world. But there truly is something to those uh, those folks that are you know born uh, in the the last uh, uh, fifteen mm-hmm. to uh, to twenty five years that have um, some higher expectations on the social positioning of business. Uh, they entering the workforce as they're uh, becoming quite significant consumers. The research is, no matter who's doing the research, whether or not it's academics or PR firms, is showing somewhere in the vicinity of 40% of them are making primary transaction decisions on a social positioning of business. You say, well, isn't that always been the case of youth? Well, not really. The millennials, it was roughly half that, 20%. And when you you get to we baby boomers of the supposed Woodstock generation, it's down to 10, 11%, which is obviously not the way we, yeah, were, we ta- were branded in the greening of America days. But, <laughs> but you're talking here about purchasing decisions or labor market choices? Both. It's all transaction purchasing and employment. So mm-hmm. whether or not for recruiting issues or for really understanding you know, which kinds of mm. detergent or watches or whatever it is or food items that, we're, that our people are buying, they're paying a good deal more attention, especially younger people, a good deal more attention to the image of hmm. that company. Uh, so there are companies like Facebook, which have, which have plunged in popularity on campuses as once um, 
uh, employers of of choice that were the the hot shops to go to. It's, yeah. Obviously, it's it's shifted dramatically. Not this that is Facebook's my... having trouble filling positions, but it isn't quite the same position they were in before. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just you know, five six years ago, Silicon Valley was way cooler than Wall Street had been as the you know sort of the dominant draw for Wharton grads for a, a long time. But now, as you point out, Facebook uh, under attack for not pr- pr- you know, protecting privacy, its alleged role in Cambridge Analytica's uh, attack. Uh, and, and right up through running these false ads, knowingly on, on uh, Nancy, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, and something very interesting that Senator Elizabeth Warren did over the weekend, which I'm sure that. you saw. Of course I did. Isn't that incredible? Yes. Is that she had the temerity to come out with an intentionally fake ad on on founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and they didn't think that's so nice. Like the old margarine ad, not not, not nice to fool Mother Nature. It was. It was okay now you're dating for, yourself, Jeff. <laughs> okay for the goose and not the gander. I'm right. dating by that one. Okay, no, Is that's that, that we all know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was. Uh, I think it was Imperial Margin. I'm not sure, but hmm. it was. Or maybe it's. I'm glad it's not butter. Whatever it is, can't believe it's not butter. Is that it? Uh-huh. Was, what's amazing? Is that. Um, that Facebook was offended by fake ads, and and yet if it's done in a political context, Facebook has a carve out exemption. After they Mark Zuckerberg met with 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 uh, President Trump last month, they mm-hmm. changed their policies, and that's I know. So young people are paying attention to that and and but, making choices about where to work, where to spend their money, based on as you call it the social positioning, the values and and mission that these that companies represent. And, uh, absolutely, and you did some very early work in back in your old dissertation days on looking at corporate reputations and how they mattered. When Fortune did their very first survey, mm-hmm. uh, you were there right on top of it, and that's been extremely important. But what what comes out in those variables is what's very highly uh, weighted is mm-hmm. again the social positioning, and this mm-hmm. is now of fellow CEOs, which is what's interesting that is registered in the uh, the, the recent business roundtable. Uh, dictum as they've come out with pronouncements, some in the Wall Street Journal and, and some in, in the business media have mm-hmm. been horrified by uh, quoting in a distorted way an old Milton Friedman statement. Mm-hmm. It was a, a 1970 New York Times article. No relation. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that where he he uh, said that the basically the only response supposedly the only responsibility of business is mm-hmm. the bottom line is is, is profits. Mm-hmm. In fact, it isn't what he said. It's kind of like uh, Rudyard Kipling gets quoted by say, by the old poem, East is East and West and West and Never the Twain Shall Meet. Well, you read the rest of the poem, he's saying just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about where good-spirited people come together, in fact, mm-hmm. friendships form. And similarly with uh, Robert Frost saying good fences make good neighbors, the rest of the poem shows that he means just the opposite. Well, Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. the rest of, of that essay, he goes on to talk about being concerned about social impact, that he was calling it community responsibility, mm-hmm. and that there are, and yet nobody reads that far. They, they, they glom on to Frederick Hayek or Ayn Rand cliches and try to, cre- or Robert Nozick philosophies, and try to argue, hey, we're not responsible for anybody else's misfortune if we didn't cause it. And that isn't exactly what Friedman said. But what the Business Roundtable is now saying is yes. that you have to be responsible to a whole host of constituencies, not strictly the shareholder. It doesn't mean that you know, that employees or customers or whomever are superior to the shareholder, but just means that 
you have to balance interests off against multiple constituencies, so is multiple this, stakeholders. Is this? Are you saying the primary driver for this is the, the Gen Z mentality of uh, focusing on, you know, what the purpose of business is and should be, and and because they are so much better informed about all the the frailties of our world and how important it is for all social and uh, political institutions uh, to 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 be part of the process of healing uh, that broken world that uh, that they are you know making this a prominent uh, issue in in their choices about their time and resources or is it more than just the 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 kids screaming hey uh, stop messing things up for us well that theory is a very important ingredient, but it's not the, the uh, solitary component. Uh, the current national politics, and this goes back a couple of years, even before the, 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 the current Trump administration has sparked some divides in society, is uh, when we had other kinds of, um, of uh, acrimonious legislation, euphemistically called the religious freedom laws in mm-hmm. Indiana and uh, North Carolina and uh, Arkansas. Interestingly, the companies that led the charge, to those religious freedom laws are also called the bathroom bills, you remember, and it was, uh, uh, you saw who led the charge. Well, it was the, the National Basketball Association you know, pulled their, uh, their tournaments out of North Carolina mm-hmm. they, over it. Uh, we saw Walmart, AT&T, and UPS and IBM, of all things, these were the companies leading the charge against these, not Howard Schultz and Starbucks, who joined on later, and Tim Cook of Apple, and other companies that we would consider have led progressive causes. Well, it's actually the mainline traditional hmm. firms so how do you that have figure? been leading the pack on this front over and over again. Why is that? In part because they, uh, out of self-interest, they don't like to see communities divided. They don't want their workforce divided. They don't want their customers divided, uh, needlessly. Uh, and so that's, that's been a very interesting brand-new twist. And it goes right up until the last few weeks, because just in the last couple of months, up through the last three weeks, mm-hmm. we've seen the EPA roll back some interesting things. We've seen the Environmental Protection Agency mm-hmm. wanting to reverse things that were part of the Obama administration. We have seen uh, a company that's hardly celebrated by environmental activists, by sustainability advocates, companies say that are in the utility world. Uh, they had been given exemptions to not have to meet certain standards mm-hmm. on the release of, uh, of mercury. And they said, no, no, no. We actually, we've invested the money. We, we'd like to keep working on it. To, uh, one month later, of all places, natural gas and petroleum refinery companies saying uh, they were told by the EPA that they no longer have to live by certain emission standards to cut back on the release of methane, which is 40 times more potent than carbon dioxide mm-hmm. as a pollutant uh, and, and for global warming. And they, too, have fought back saying, no, 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 we've invested the $9.5 billion already. And we, we're afraid of a next administration or whomever will come along, will hold us to these standards. And then, lo and behold, the auto industry, which, of course, Stuart, you, you once worked in a very important leadership development role in, in, in Ford, is your old employer, Ford, Volvo, uh, BMW, and, of all things, VW, that had a bit of a problem with an admission scandal themselves yes. recently. Mm-hmm. They have said 
we want to work with California on elevated standards yeah. for fuel efficiency. And the EPA said, oh, no, you won't. I know. Uh, and, and then they said, no, we'll work voluntarily with them. So meet, has, has uh, the private sector become the regulator and the regulator become, you know, the, the engine of self-interest and destruction of the environment? You know, we warned our audience that we could go the full hour on this because, <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. Look at Charlottesville is right after Charlotte. And by the way, the, 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 the Trump administration's Justice Department is coming after the automakers on antitrust grounds for working together for cleaner standards. They're saying that we can meet 50 miles per gallon efficiency by 2026, working together and saying, oh no, that's collusion. What does all this mean, Jeff, for uh, our business leaders in terms of how their role has changed? It means there's a call to action. Uh, you know, say post-Charlottesville, you remember, I believe that the, that the murder took place on a Friday night of a peaceful activist, a, a sweet-seeming woman uh, by uh, some Nazi elements that, that rammed her. Is, uh, then the President Trump came up with a statement that some thought was a little underpowered, but it condemned, it condemned the violence and con- condemned the Nazis. And then the next day, on a Sunday, he did some sort of a, 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 a misguided equivocation between both mm-hmm, sides mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that uh, violent, one was peaceful and one was violent. And then, uh, of course, that night, uh, Ken Fraser, the CEO of Merck, mm-hmm. contacted his board and said, I can't stay on the president's advisory council. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't speak for the company. I can speak for myself. But I leave the company's values in your hands. And You wrote a great piece about his, his, uh, his standing up uh, and speaking out at that moment. I'm sorry. Please continue. Uh, yeah, no, a- absolutely. And this was a... Again, a, a company that you knew well, and uh, and you were used to be close to uh, um, a former HR EVP there, who was a wonderful guy, uh, and uh, and the company's values were always strong from you know for so long that uh, that he said we can't go ahead with, with an endorsing that, but he didn't want to make a public attack. He just said I'm stepping off, mm-hmm. and the board unanimously stood by him. Mm-hmm. But then the news as that hit, it was a shot heard around the country is people watch to see what would happen. And initially, nobody did anything. And my daughter was at home. We were watching the CNBC that morning, and she said, well, Daddy, why didn't anybody say anything? I said, so I called CNBC. Actually, frankly, just between us, I called Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Times and CNBC. And he said, oh, well, uh, you know, we tried, and nobody will respond. They're afraid. I said, well, you should write your story about that. So we set off to do that. Uh And, And I started calling into some CEOs who check with their boardrooms. And sure enough, the CEO of Walmart, UPS, they jumped on board. Uh, Bob Iger of Disney was the very first, Meg Whitman of, uh, then of HP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a little bit later, we, we saw Under Armour and some Intel and some others jump on board. There's a second wave. And then ultimately, they all walked out by Wednesday, the first time in American history that the business community, the American business community, said no to a call to action by the commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. On a global scale, we saw this just let, this time last year after um, that, that, that journalist, Khashoggi, from... Uh, the uh, Washington, Washington Post was uh, was uh, dismembered, uh, kidnapped and dismembered by the Saudis. That Davos in the desert uh, was right afterwards, and many of the leaders in the financial community they boycotted. Had, well, and it was amazing. It's the people who led the boycott were people who do the most business with the Saudis. Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan mm-hmm. that goes back almost 80 years working with Saudi Aramco, Steve Schwarzman at Blackstone, and others were surprising that they're the ones who said we're not going. Mm-hmm. So this this is an important trend, and w- what does it what does it tell us about how uh, 
uh, people coming up into business leadership positions are thinking about their roles uh, as as socially responsible actors. Well, there always will be some bad guys, you know, and whether or not it's in business or uh, in the clergy or heavens, even in the university world, we oh, have dear. some bad actors, mm-hmm. as we know. So it won't always be purists. We'll have some people who make some mistakes or some people who have failures of judgment or character. However, what we're seeing the mainstream is celebrating is uh, basically the business roundtables canonizing what's already been happening on its own Hmm. is that we're seeing that the idea of doing good is not antithetical to doing well, that you can pursue profits, you can put market share and strong investor returns and still be a responsible uh, corporate citizen. So that's a great model that's being set at the top. And again, there always will be infractions. There will always be some bad guys along the way. Uh, but uh, but the, um, the business community is not endorsing that. Well, you can just see the tensions this week, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to do it depth on it, but just when the NBA was trying to find its way mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the uh, the Houston Rockets general manager making a statement about the human rights activists in Hong Kong, which mm-hmm. is admittedly a, a more complex situation. It's not simple black and white. But still, when he weighed in, and then was the NBA initially going to punish him and condemn him because it cost them a lot, is an awful lot of people in the country were, were proud that the NBA and Adam Silver, their mm-hmm. CEO, founder, mm-hmm. the commissioner, found their way to say, well, we stand for freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so this is... Uh a promising trend, and and yet there is resistance to it. Uh, how do you see it unfolding in in the days to come? Well, you know, it's it's interesting when you look at it on a case by case basis. Uh, you can you can take a look at um, uh, at times where uh, there are genuine bad guys. Uh, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines was reluctant to deal with some problems that they've had with uh, people suffering on their ships, or Equifax when they had their uh, data breach. And uh, they could find companies that, uh, and we talked about Facebook earlier, in denial. And then as stuff came out, we saw that whistleblowers were being threatened, and then senators who were investigating it, uh, that there were uh, smear campaigns at the very top of Facebook that were being launched uh, to uh, sort of try to attack them is that there are some you know bad actors happen out there from time to time we see it but sometimes we confuse the good guys with the bad guys what do you mean sadly elizabeth warren uh was exploiting uh, a good guy named tim sloan who rose up uh to take over wells fargo after bad things were done at wells fargo as you know with the uh with the huge number of fake accounts millions of fake mm-hmm. accounts mm-hmm. And uh, it's and there are damages done to people, and both whistleblowers and compliant uh, conspirators were were fired equally. It was a terrible situation. But a guy named John Stumpf, who is was the the leader who's responsible for that, they had a board inquiry to to clear the CFO who was put in to turn things around. And any bad headline that happened under that successor who stepped mm-hmm. in, Tim Sloan was of his own generation. He was turning over the rocks, and government regulators hmm. were following in his wake, benefiting from it. Hmm. But Elizabeth Warren no longer had, as a scapegoat, the fired John Stump, so she turned to Tim Sloan and was bludgeoning him. And it worries me when there are times where, in haste, we can confuse the good guys with the bad guys, and that's, uh, that is problematic, and somehow we have, to, we have to watch for that. There's obviously a very difficult situation of Boeing right now, and again, we could fill the whole hour... Uh, talking through with that, which I don't believe there are any villains there, and yet, you know, losing mm-hmm. 350 
lives in that horrible plane carnage mm-hmm. of those two crashes. But it doesn't mean every time there's a mishap, there's necessarily a villain. Doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't mean we can't do better and come up with corrective procedures and things. But that's that's just the only danger is that we we have to make sure we don't rush. Uh, Rush to in a vilification uh, and a simplification and complicated global situations. And you know, I want to return. Uh, yes, of, these are all you know. The, it's rarely black and white. But you, you mentioned earlier how your daughter asked you that question as you're watching CNBC, which I'm impressed that she watches that with you. First of all, but, it wasn't her call. <laughs> I had <laughs> I had it on. She much would rather have seen uh, uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC. <laughs> okay, or, good to know. Uh, but. You know, that, that that calls to mind something that, you know, I wanted to ask you about, and that is how our children see, you know, who we are and what we stand for and what we try to get done uh, in the organizations and businesses that we are a part of. Um, and, I, and I wonder if that's part of what is sort of powering this shift as more... Um, you know, more business leaders uh, and other institutional uh, directors are just somehow more conscious of how their kids are looking at them. What do you think? Yeah, I think that um, we, when we saw the governance collapses of 2001, and initially people were saying, oh, it, it was some some problems in cyberspace. We had a lot of startup companies with some misrepresented numbers and facts, and they said, well, it, it's because of uh, of the, the novelty of very young people who didn't know how to lead. Well, that ex- explanation didn't last long, and then Fortune had suggested soon after, looking, it was financial institutions and utility companies, companies going through regulatory shifts. So there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, but that didn't last long, because a- after about, I don't know, almost a year and a half, we saw that every segment of the business community had bad guys in it, whether or not it was mm-hmm. uh, in the telecom world, uh, you know, with, with MCI or energy with, with Enron or wherever we looked, uh, there were great pillars of, uh, and, and then the rest of the world was laughing at us as Larry Summers, as Secretary of Treasury, used to say that the greatest export this country has is GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, and people were laughing in Europe saying you could drive a, the GAAP, and GAAP is so big you drive a truck through it, as if the problems were all U.S., and then we started to hear about BP and Royal Dutch Shell mm-hmm, and Marmalade mm-hmm. and, and so many of these problems, Canary Wharf, and it turned out Swiss Air, that this was hardly a U.S. problem is that at that time we saw people who were pillars of the community shamed before their kids. Mm. That it wasn't just uh, scoundrels who were running Ponzi schemes, mm-hmm. but very mainstream companies were doing some very bad things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, so it dates back to just the beginning of this new millennium that uh, we started to see uh, people worried about their reputations. Jeff, uh, before the break, we were talking about how other forces, uh, other social, cultural forces in the new millennium are, are reshaping uh, the, the, the landscape that, that leaders tread these days. Um, please pick it up from where well, we were. thank you very much. You know, we were talking uh, about some of the driving forces and the 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 demography of a generational cohort like Gen Z's values was one, and we talked about the governance 
scandals and, and breakdowns of 2001 that led to shame in front of the eyes of, of kids and family members of, of CEOs mm-hmm. and, and, and the repercussions of mainstream companies that, that, that really fell down that weren't just outlier cor- known uh, you know, corrupt marginal players, but mainstream places that had done some shady things. And mm-hmm. the financial collapse would have been another example of that 2007, 2008. And then we also talked about some political divides that have led the business community to be a leader of, of social change and harmony, including mainstream companies, many of the kinds of companies, traditional employers, that were subject to all kinds of, uh, whether or not it was antitrust or, uh, or discrimination and, and gender mm-hmm. and race in the 70s and into the early 80s, that those large bureaucracies, those traditional firms, seem to have put in corrective practices, learned their ways, and many times it's the bro culture of the uh, of the tech hmm. young companies that are are soft often uh, a repository of misconduct because they so mythologize the meritocracy believing that they can't have bias and prejudice in a place like them but but when we, when we get into those that's those an important point let, let me just i want to drill down on that if we can uh about you know where you see those risks and uh you know worsening being contained uh, you know, with the power of, uh, of of Silicon Valley and what you refer to as the bro culture, uh, you know, how where is where is that collision heading, or is it? Well, you know, you, you look at the at the diversity at Google and Facebook and other firms. Uh, the composition of the workforce should be a lot better, a lot more balanced than it is. Uh, and old excuses at the higher are, levels. At, yeah, well, yeah, especially at the higher levels. I mean, you can you look at an old line company in industry like aerospace, and uh, you have the, the the top five aerospace companies are are led by women. Four of them are led by women. I mean, mm-hmm. how macho is that? Oil companies. Uh, we have some major financial institutions led by by women, and how surprising that is. And yet, we don't see it in the worlds of media. Oddly enough, where uh, to your uh, your implied point, there are a huge number of women, and it's easily parity, if not more, in the lower ranks of uh, media companies, and yet in the senior ranks, it's still not represented as studio chiefs and all the rest. Mm-hmm. It's uh, rare. <clears throat> but in um, in a world of technology, it should be so much uh, better uh, than it is, and that is, uh, that is a, a concern, because they just believe... Uh, in, in, the, in the meritocracy so much, and that uh, they haven't, that some of them are working on it. But you look at a firm like, how could Uber or, uh, or Facebook or WeWorks uh, uh, move towards going public as they did in each stage, and WeWorks, of course, collapsed, without yes. a woman proposed on the board, say we can't find a woman with a sufficient background. Or, you know, uh, you and I, as fast as we could speak, could name 50 great women for any one of those firms with experience that is dead center, that they're not in any way ornamental, but very core. How do you explain that? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not old boy networks, it's new boy networks. And it was mm. the, uh, the engineers who know engineers and people who, who are just mm-hmm. uh, subject to human bias, that the, the frailties that we see that can be in the church or academia or also can be in tech, technology. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's a lot of it. There's another question that comes up with technology uh, not to shift away, but when when we were young, we we knew that in the the nuclear world, people were being held responsible, just like in the uh, other parts of energy, in petroleum world, held responsible for what they've done. But scientists knowing sin 
in the post-nuclear age, post-atom bomb and things, was a major uh, shadow over our own childhoods, too. But then mm -hmm. we saw um, in a, at a later stage, and when we were beginning our careers, it was life sciences. There were lots of debates about uh, ethics uh, and bioethics in, in the life sciences world. Well, today it has to do with, uh, w with information technology. And interestingly, mm -hmm. it's uh, companies like IBM, that Ginny Rometty, uh, by the, the way, a the woman, CEO. but, but, but Ginny Rometty has been leading the charge on responsible uses of data. Do you know that here's a company that with their Watson and all the kinds of crawling and, and uh, AI technologies they have, mm -hmm. they could be monitoring the, the social media uses of their employees the way other companies do. They don't. Hmm. Uh, they, the the uh, customer data is, is held very private. You own your data there, hmm. unlike uh, a lot of their competitors. And, and so, so responsible uses of data, though, just is a, an enormous area. And I, I do think that... Uh, that the whole idea of the responsibility of a new technology. People would argue, oh, technology is neutral. Well, it's not necessarily. You know, it's like saying a knife is neutral. A knife can be used to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, to cut your, your, your dinner, or it can be used to stab somebody. Or atomic course. power. That's, that was Einstein's great worry. Exactly. <sighs> Which was it going to be used as a force for good or a force for massive destruction? So, so, so you see the the Silicon Valley culture, the the tech bro culture, as uh, as one that what needs to be they need it. And reined I'm in. The question, and Robert Oppenheimer, of course, who led the Manhattan Project, was the one who was uh, perhaps uh, uh, most shattered by the the awesome destructiveness of what they unleashed, and spent the rest of his life trying to make amends for that. Uh, like Alfred Nobel and the Nobel Peace Prize, of course, he invented dynamite, that sometimes people are haunted by their earlier career contributions mm. and, and the way it's been used. So, yeah, I do think we have uh, a lot of attention will be uh, spent on, on the responsible uses of data. And a company like Facebook has absolutely learned very few lessons, if any, on, on their misconduct. And, uh, you know, there are many great things about the company. You don't want to vilify, vilify them as an enterprise, but they've been they've been extraordinarily they're the, they're the poster child of irresponsibility and there are gradations uh, along a, a spectrum of how people deal with the power they've unleashed tell us you know now at at this stage in your life and career what are what are some of the key lessons that that you've learned uh, in your research and practice and your own experience about what what it takes to uh, to respond, to re to rebound, to come back from uh, adverse, you know, deeply adverse uh, events. Well, knowing your sterling career, you've had no setbacks, but you've had <laughs> friends like me who have had setbacks and bumps along the way. First of all, and that's not true about me, but please continue. <laughs> and what what you come to appreciate is. Um, uh, by the way, the only time we ever had a disagreement on anything was when some um, Ukrainian-Russian banker was trying to inveigle his way into you and other friends' professional lives, and you all saved yourselves, but I was too heavy-handed on that, and I still regret that. Oh, but, my gosh. Uh, is, uh, <laughs> but look how, for, look how prophetic it was. No, no, you me. were very helpful to me in yeah. that regard, so I mean, thank seriously, you. Seriously, I won't tell you about what's happened to that institution and that person, but 
it was it, it's a, oh, wow. a very scary twist. Wow. And and I was nervous as he was working working major institutions' names. But the all right. Uh, but back could, to, back to the story of firing back. <laughs> Although it, maybe this is one. That no, that is part of it. You take a look at people. Uh, you know, say I mentioned Boeing before. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as we know so far, there are no bad guys there. There certainly was a bad outcome. And what's important, as Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, is mm. that as when a company has a, a tremendous uh, uh, setback, or individuals, and perhaps the Johnson & Johnson earlier era Tylenol is a great example, is Jim Burke, mm-hmm. who uh, we both knew, yeah. was uh, fantastic at this, is that he voluntarily withdrew this tainted product, and Many of his people said, oh, no, I mean, it's going to be so costly to take this off Clear the Clear out the shelves and, everywhere. Yeah. And yet, and he said that the, you know, the America is unique, uh, that the public has such access to product that uh, we, where it was tampered, was it tampered in the store, was it tampered? And we never found out who the uh, actually original terrorist was, whoever it was that tampered with the first round of uh, cyanide. But then strychnine came in at a later stage, and they did identify the, the copycat uh, uh, awful person and did that. But there are deaths in various parts of the country, initially in the Chicago area and then elsewhere. And Jim Burke just took the product off the shelf. Many of his advisors, including internal advisors, said you could compartmentalize it. Mm. Uh, that's just make it a McNeil Labs, the division of Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. That market. And you said, no, no, this is a Johnson Johnson company. That that the most valuable resource we have is our credo. Our, our, is, well, but the, everybody had to say in credo, but they read it differently. Uh. And he said it's the reputation that matters most. Mm-hmm. Is that for generations before us they built it. And and that that trust, that institutional trust, that it's it's that it's real, it's palpable, it's bankable, and that's what he said is the most valuable resource you have. And as um, that institutional trust, as Thomas More, you know, advisor King Henry VIII said, it's so fragile, it's like having a liquid cupped in your hands. Once you separate the fingers, it's forever gone. Hmm. Is that when something shattering happens, what do you do to restore it? Jim Burke had the good sense to acknowledge the problem right out. The first thing you were just saying, Jeff, is acknowledge the reality of what you've done. Acknowledge have- the reality. There's a, a fight or flight uh, paradox that people face in a time of crisis. Fight or flight is that uh, many times uh, people will tell you, oh, you know, sweep it under the carpet. Nobody will notice. Everybody notices. They may not tell you, <laughs> but they see it. Mm. And, and tomorrow's another day, as they told Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, or take your lumps. Or as many well-intended stress counselors who are friends of ours will tell you, PhDs uh, who, are, who are therapists will say, uh, you know, uh, you need some, um, some stress release, you need to work, you know, how about yoga? That's all great. But what current research suggests out of Johns Hopkins and Yale on victims of post-traumatic stress situations, whether or not in battle or in natural disasters or, mm-hmm. or, or other things, is that... Um, that you have to acknowledge the source of the problem and not try to bury it. It's like telling somebody who has a, has a drinking problem, say, have you tried drugs? Mm. Uh, no, go, go for the source of it. Don't just try to bury it with, mm-hmm. um, with Tai Chi. Tai Chi is great, but it's not enough alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there is a um, the CEO, I shouldn't use names, but just between us, Nick Nicholas, who's a fantastic CEO of Time Warner for 11 minutes until he got sabotaged by uh, a pen-trained colleague of his who took the job from him mm-hmm. uh, and um, he, people were dumbfounded it was it was a huge injustice 
Well, he went off to lick his wounds in Vail. I'd go and visit him, actually, in Beaver Creek. I'd visit him in New York, and he'd punch up different directors on the phone who would say it was a huge mistake, Nick, we're going to bring you back in. And he, he was waiting for his curtain call. You know, you, hmm. no, you've, got to, you've got to fight it back. Uh, what does that take? He was a major investor in what? different things. He did well, but he never got a CEO job again. So what fight, didn't he not do? flight is the first lesson. Fight, not flight. Well, Second one. Why do some people fight and others recoil? Because they get part of it is because they get bad advice or they blame themselves. Mm. There's a there's a tremendous loss of confidence of self esteem. It's humiliating to have many times as a failure as, as public. Yeah. Uh, and a, a sec a second one mm-hmm. is uh, is to seek others, but not just the support of intimate friends and. Way back in your early training, you've got a great training yourself in therapist as a therapist, wow, and you would that. know that intimate family members are great for emotional support. However, great work that Mark Granovetter did out in Stanford on uh, a work on a sociologist, but early network researcher. It's called the strength of weak ties, mm-hmm. uh, which takes a look at how, in fact, um, how important it is to have secondary friendships, people at reunions, people in executive programs or uh, classmates and things. You don't really know that well, but they, I mean, you know each other. They understand your situation, but they're not a threat. They're not a rival for your, for your position on the job, and they aren't just giving you emotional support, which is important but not sufficient alone from family members, is that they can understand. They, and that's where most people get their new starts mm-hmm. is through that Network of secondary and tertiary mm-hmm. friends. So you're not an island, you're not alone. It's a, it's a critical second lesson. A third one mm. is you've got to have your strategy clear. Is it contrition? Did you do something wrong? As uh, Martha Stewart, who I don't think should have, went off to, uh, to prison. I actually don't think, you know, I think she maybe tried to do something wrong, but she didn't succeed at it. But nonetheless, there are people who will take the contrition route and apologize. In that case, you have to atone for it, show you won't do it again, uh-huh. and, and what went wrong. Or you have to fight it, scream it from the mountaintops, just to inflame your listeners. I'm not saying I support or attack uh, Justice Kavanaugh, but that's an example of somebody, obviously, was screaming what he felt was his innocence from the mountaintops, uh, despite some very compelling counter-evidence from, mm-hmm. from victims, is that uh, you, you have to have a choice, contrition uh, or, or, or um, Defense. exoneration. Mm-hmm. But you see these celebrities who try to straddle it, well, you know, if I offended somebody in that Nazi outfit or whatever. No, no, not, not, you don't condition it. You either did or didn't, hmm. and you can't just go off to rehab. So that's a third one. And a, hmm. a fourth critical one is even if you did nothing wrong, you still, people wonder, well, you're kind of um, uh, weak and damaged just through the experience of being accused. You somehow have to prove that you can still do whatever made you once great. And, you know, say what your mm. listeners will say about, about President Trump. Is this, through his four bankruptcies, you go down the west side of New York right now, you see the name Trump on, on what was going to be a, a communication central on the west side and things, but... The, that these buildings went up, and he lost his ownership interest. But to get the business done there, either they're dealing with labor unions or getting the tenants, or at least at that time, his name was of value. That it winds up in brass on the top of these buildings. Uh, there are other, you know, Hillary Clinton, of course, was a very powerful model of resilience too. She had plenty of missteps, and uh, but recovered from most, not all. So for but, people uh, um, who were, you know, recently having suffered a kind of. Uh, major setback in their careers how would you boil it down to you know what are the things that they really should think hard about and and try to take action on it they should reassure 
short people, they can still do what made them great. And the fifth and last one has to do with not living in the past. Don't define yourself by your losses. That hmm. you know, there's a there's a great investment bank, Sandler O'Neill, that lost a third of its workforce in 9/11. Uh, Jimmy Dunn, their CEO, gave them the will to go on. Uh, a lot of people had given them up uh, as 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 dead, along with a third of their workers. And he didn't himself think they necessarily would survive. But they put their capital, their money back in. Many of their competitors wouldn't even pay the families of the victims, their co-workers, because mm-hmm. they said, well, we just don't have the money. They said, it doesn't matter. We survived. We're going to put our money in. We're going to pay families of the victims of the, the public safety workers rushing into the buildings, our folks are rushing out of. And, and they are very mindful of who they lost. You go to their website, you still see tributes there. Mm-hmm. But they live in the future. They live successes. And they became the most successful independent uh, as, uh, investment bank. So you want to define yourself by the future. And Martha Stewart, while in prison, came out with a publication called Everyday Eating, which for a while outsold the Wall Street Journal. And uh, you've got to not live in the past and not drown yourself and be defined from failure. So those would be uh, five really critical Extremely helpful. And and how, last question on this, and then we're going to have to bring it home. Uh, How do you you talk to your family about such... uh, you know, calamities as you're as you're trying to work through them and come back in the way that you just described. Well, you know, when when somebody trips, you know how in attribution theory, the psychology psychological field of attribution theory, somebody trips on a sidewalk. If you're the person who trips, you start cursing the town, the city, the municipality, yes. and crooked sidewalk. Why can't they why can't they pave the roads? But if but if you're watching, you laugh and say, "What a what a clumsy academic or whomever it is." is I, I try to uh, inspire with my students and my family and, and others that we have to get the perspective of multiple parties on every situation, mm-hmm. that uh, we don't necessarily condemn the victim, not to blame the victim. There's, mm-hmm. uh, there's a book out now that has done well by a colleague of ours, Stu, that's talking about when bad things happen to good companies, mm-hmm. and in every case, it blames the victim. That's not fair. Sometimes you have collegial envy. Sometimes you have you know, uh, economic disruptions, things that are not your fault. Uh, and so with multiple perspectives, one thing I preach, and also every mm-hmm. time there's a setback, we talk about it in our family and in our own lives and what mm-hmm. we can learn from it and what's a way out of it and uh, how can we somehow be strengthened through the experience. And what, um, so I think it's some, you know, uh, it's so good we close on this point because in most leadership development programs that, that you and I have seen, People aren't spending the time to do what you're doing on this in this session is talking about failure and setback instead of onward and upwards. You know the Benjamin Franklin cliches, uh, all those bon mots of old English proverbs that he he repositioned. Speaking of pen, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, or, or, we know who or he is. Norman Vincent Peale or Deepak Chopra, whoever it is, or Seven Essential Habits of This or That that Cure Everything, is that it's all so success oriented. But in fact, when you look at heroes across mm. centuries, across cultures, across continents. One of the things that the great anthropologist Joseph Campbell pointed out in his book, Hero of a Thousand Faces, is that failure is critical for, de- for punctuating a heroic career. Now, most people don't make it through the near-death experience. They die. But mm-hmm. for those who make it through, that resilience is priceless learning. And you're tempered, like, like metal is tempered uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in making steel, is that you're, you're, you're forever different because of it and hopefully forever better. All right, people, make sure you read Joseph Campbell. Uh, and uh, before we before we leave, Jeff, uh, where can people find out more about the work that you're up to these days and, and what's coming next? That is so nice of you. Is uh, 
like used to, I, I rarely remember to carry a business card and forget the self-promotional side. We get so well, caught up in I'm remembering. But yes, if you go to my our website uh, at Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute or uh, CELI, uh, yeah, dot com or dot org or uh, or Jeffrey dot at Yale dot edu, I'm happy to answer anybody directly, or pick up the uh, the Heroes Farewell or Firing Back or or two books that address things we've spoken about today. Or tune in CNBC or Fortune. I, I contribute regularly to both of those. And uh, with great wisdom and panache always, Jeff Sonnenfeld, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. It's been a real treat. Stu, I loved it. Thank you very much. I'm honored. I hope you found my conversation with Jeff Sonnenfeld to be mind-expanding, as I did. It's always that way when I talk to Jeff. It makes you think about things that you haven't thought about before. Well, let's let's bring it a little closer to home for you. Here is a challenge for you, an invitation to go a bit further on one of the things that we talked about. And my hope is that this challenge, this invitation to you might strengthen the sense of humanity that you bring to what you do, what you're going after in your work, in your career. So here it is. What is the social impact of your work? What, in other words, is the strongest, the most compelling link in your head, in your mind, as you think about it, between what you're doing and other people's lives? And as you think about this, how does your awareness, just stepping back and focusing on the effects of your work on other people, how do you think that influences how you, the people who know you best, your family, your friends, how they feel about what you're pursuing in your work and your career? Think about that just for a minute or two and, and, and then try to focus on how that might shift a bit your thinking on a daily basis about what it is that you do and how that might influence your motivation for the work that you're doing, the career, the career that you're pursuing. Does it? I'd love to hear from you. So you can get in touch with me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, Check out our website, TotalLeadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.